As crypto technology becomes more popular, its advocates have come to see it as a solution for many big problems, including the problem of creating a metaverse for the masses. Today, I'll be presenting an argument against that position, and I'll be joined by some wonderful crypto experts, company CEOs, fund managers, and more. I've gone out of my way to connect with experts from every part of the community on this one. Many interesting perspectives will be represented, but I'll start with my own. Before we get into it, however, I'd love to invite you to be part of what's going on here at OCEM. In a virtual world industry driven by greed, mania, and privacy infringement, we stand for an ethical metaverse. If any corporation is responsible for our speech in the metaverse, it will inevitably become a dystopian situation. We're researching what it takes to put people in charge of the future of the metaverse. We're in urgent need of mentors, donors, and contributors. So if you know anything about building virtual worlds, we'd love to have you as a mentor. If you want to financially support, we'd love to have you as a donor. And if you'd like to discover what it means to use a decentralized collective to build bespoke virtual world products, we would love to have you as a contributor. One more time, we're looking for mentors, donors, and contributors. To do any of these things, head over to ocem.cc slash contribute. That is ocem.cc slash contribute. We'd love to see you there. It's sad to see that we can barely go a day without hearing about another NFT rug pull, grift, or crypto scam. Web3 was founded on the idea of a new decentralized internet in which we take back control from the big players and build something of, for, and by the people. There are so many good ideals. Privacy. Creators getting paid what they're worth. Taking back control from the centralized players, as I said before, and the freedom of expression. However, this whole concept seems to be just good marketing. Let's take privacy for an example. Web3 allows us to be anonymous by allowing anyone to create a new wallet and start a new list of transactions. However, we're in a situation where scammers are able to run wild and create a new identity each time they're exposed. There are now whole NFT factories doing these scams on rinse and repeat because it's just that easy. Not only that, for ordinary people, an immutable blockchain address is a terrible idea for privacy. As you use the address, more and more of your personal information gets attached to it, and it becomes a public database of everything you do. Do you really want everyone in the world to be able to see what you're doing, what you own, every transaction you make? And what if someone sends a picture of your front door to your address, or even an indecent photo that you've taken? It'll be there forever. You have no recourse, no civility, no humanity at all. When has decentralization done anything for privacy anyway? A decentralized system is not only more easy to exploit, but very difficult to patch and update. Now let's talk about usability. The only thing making the blockchain usable by ordinary people right now is centralized parties like Coinbase. Why hasn't the technology been made with usability from the ground up? Doesn't this defeat the whole purpose? We could even talk about an interoperable metaverse. This is an idea that some are claiming these technologies will solve. But there's so many issues with this, it's really hard to get into it. There's the issue that one item from one world will not fit another world's style. That 
every world has an incentive not to accept the NFTs because they could charge for creating them themselves. And that you have to create them themselves anyway because games and virtual worlds, you know, that's the version of the metaverse we see today, are, you know, very bespoke experiences. People don't understand that everything is perfectly fit to everything else. Web3 is predicated on the idea that we're tired of companies like Facebook doing things that they shouldn't with our data. But the ideas behind Web3 are fundamentally flawed. Decentralization of architecture does not create either community or privacy or anything functional toward the metaverse. We need a future that puts people in control, a future based on ideas that will have a reasonable chance against a centralized massive corporate push and those walled gardens we always see. At Awesome, we're taking a different take. And our idea is that it's not about decentralizing the architecture, but coming up with a different way of creating the organizations that we trust. Now that I've shared my perspective, let's go right into the debate. What you're gonna hear is me starting out, sharing my perspective, and then everyone else chiming in. Okay, we've been in a situation where basically the web has gone from this really decentralized thing, right? Where we have this wonderful opportunity uh, to make our own website and to publish our own stuff, uh, to now we're on platforms. And these platforms are like Twitter and Reddit and Facebook, and there's these big platforms. And if you, if you say something wrong on these platforms, there is potential that you will be banned, you know? And this is a really interesting place to be because uh, where I was at not very long ago is, uh, well, I'll just give you some background. Uh, basically, I, I didn't grow up in the West. Well, I grew up only partially in the West. And, um, you know, for me, the way of thinking here in the West is different to the one I that, that I hold so dear to myself. And one of the things I realized is that Westerners kind of built this entire civilization on you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That means question everything, right? Question everything is really the foundation of what Greco-Roman culture did differently from every other culture out there. Uh, they basically said, you know, um, if something is happening in the physical world, it was not necessarily just caused by God. There's a reason it was caused, right? And it was this thinking through life and this using logic and reason to understand life that set, you know, Western society apart. And it's interesting because I just listened to uh, an audiobook from uh, a Japanese writer talking about the differences between Japanese culture before this is before Jap uh, Japan went through the Meiji Restoration. Uh, basically, he was saying, you know, we value the spiritual and these people value the rational. They value the understanding of the world. But it's interesting because I feel like we're we're entering a new stage, a new way of thinking in two different veins that is contrary to where Western thinking has brought us. And I am I am neither in one camp nor the other. But my thinking is this is, is that Western thinking um, is, is changing and it's becoming more religious in nature. Uh, and it is becoming more about ideas and ideals rather than questioning and reason. And there's been a change. There's a change, I think this, this begins with my generation. There's been a change in um, what people see as true, what people see as real. And uh, it's really interesting how this all intersects with 
crypto and Web3. And I think it's one of the reasons for us, the, the tech people wanting a Web3. Uh, we've got to remember that we are in a bubble. We live in a bubble. And uh, one of the reasons a lot of people want Web3 is because we want to be able to express ourselves without being beholden to any platform. We want to be able to say what we want without being beholden to any platform. Now, I don't want to talk about certain things here, uh, but we've uh, because I don't want to get this podcast banned, right? Um, so I have to be careful in what I say, and which is the irony, because that's the exact thing we're trying to fight, right? That we don't have to be careful. But um, I was thinking, I, I, I was doing business in China at the time when this COVID-19 uh, pandemic came up, and I saw firsthand cities in China shutting down. I didn't see it firsthand. All, all the people I was working with, all of a sudden, they were describing to me the situation in real time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a really big deal. And it's going to come to the West very, very soon. And at first, that opinion was, was taken as sacrilege because basically, uh, you know, the, the mainstream thinking was this was going to be a new flu. It was not going to be a really big deal. Then it was mainstream thinking that it was a big deal, but that masks were worthless, right? And I was of the opinion that masks were valuable. And don't worry, this has nothing to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm trying to get to some a shift that's happening at the heart of our culture. Uh, but basically, um, we've become very dogmatic about these things. Uh, we're no longer being free to question and reason. And I really believe that no matter the subject, no matter the argument, no matter what's at stake, we must, we must, we must have questioning, reasoning. We must have doubt. If we don't have doubt, we can't grow in our ideas and our thinking. And one of the ideals of Web3 is how do we take back control from these centralized parties who have stole our ability to, to have, you know, control over what we say um, and, and put it in our hands? And the great irony is while this is happening in, in many crypto communities, and I want to call out Decentraland, for which I'm streaming right now, uh, in many crypto communities, they ban fear, uncertainty, and doubt. What on earth is up with that? Banning fear, uncertainty, and doubt. What is going? On? I'll let you jump in. Go ahead. It's been it's been it's been for quite a while as well because throughout history, it's been this back and forth between dogmatism and what you could call the enlightenmentism. What started mm -hmm. here mostly with the enlightenment. Yeah. And it's like it's moving through the cultures. You see it from moving from ancient Egypt through Islam yep. into Europe in the 1500s up through here to what we call now Western culture. Um, by the way, Greco-Roman is not a continuous line, so it went no, for sure, south for and came back agree. up again. Yeah, absolutely. We're it's much less Greco-Roman than we, they were, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, we are more Egyptian, actually, I think. Yeah. But anyway, other topic. And it comes to the point where we say where we create to today, where we had a couple of revolutions that I'm culturally part of. So okay. I'm in the Europe. There is a couple of uh, segments that formed in the 80s. Yeah. Um, there is a big association called the Chaos Computer Club. Okay. And that's basically all around hacking and computer culture. So imagine this is the first time the computers came up. Yeah. Everybody had these big teletype machines and mainframes and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's the birth of computer security. 
Okay. So you're kind of mixing a lot of elements already there. Where the first, this was this is a famous story of the computer club. Yeah. Where this uh, German postal service was running monetary transactions. Yeah. And it allowed them to be taking place on the teletype system. Interesting. Now, back in the day, the teletype system was pure text. It was unencrypted. It was a proprietary platform from one producer. Yeah. And it was basically not like the security was the producer said it was secure. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So here are the couple of guys in the garage that basically publicly proved that this is not the case. Mm -hmm. And they could transfer around money as much as they wanted to any account they wanted. Okay, interesting. And they actually did that. So they did a, it's more of like they managed to, on the edge of public stunt slash crime, they managed to make it as a public stunt because the money was just enough and they uh, showed everything they did and publicized everything. Yeah. So they got away with it. But gotcha. uh, it started a long debate about criminalization of such kind of intrusions. Mm -hmm. um, in Germany, this ended up with the formation of the Chaos Computer Club with okay. a massive operational security. So these guys, as a hacker, as a private foundation, have as much operational security knowledge as the CIA. Okay, interesting. So if you know certain things, then you can be sure it's going to stay there. Yeah. Kind of deal. Definitely. Interesting. And especially I the... Before. Yeah, this this is where this small thing that started here, but it all it started all around the world kind of a deal. Yeah. In the same kind-ish way. In the US, it was a lot in the universities. Yeah. Um, and science as the kind of... Um, F ethics guidance had a lot of influence into it. Yeah. So see open source or free software, which came out of the university movement from there. Yeah. And it's all of these movements kind of starting to happen together where it's like, hey, this is the new thing and we want to be completely free. Mm -hmm. So this also is where the web one first came from, where they were like, hey, now that we can easily send data to each other, and this was a bit and bytes back then yeah. let's organize around a standard so we can send stuff to each other mm -hmm. and all of that was taken basically getting out of economics this was outside of the economic bubble so and then of course the economic bubble started to come into this whole thing we started to get web too yeah started to get the big companies that wanted to have value in their own thing this is a, a thing you want because you want to maybe sell shares well, i think so we were in, like in web one the companies were already there you know we had the dot-com bust bubble and bust long before we had web two uh, i think you know the the big players were were a big deal in web one um and you know uh it's just there's been a coalescing web two was you know we're now using the Certain. google facebook and whatever platforms you know yeah that's true no th that's the thing because the platforms came in web 2 as you say and there were others in web 1 but the web 1 ones had physical selling points right all of them or a specific service so it was service or physical yeah 
change in Web2 comes in in the platform. Yeah. Where what is happening and how many users you have starts to become a value. Mm -hmm. And this is now again being questions with two approaches actually. So it's not just Web3 that questions this. Mm -hmm. There is certain parts of the Web1 left over, um, mainly email. Interesting, interesting. Just That's true. I, I haven't seen it that way. But yeah. to, uh, there's a thing that it's kind of hidden behind the walls mm -hmm. because the Chaos Computer Club and other organizations, of course, manage to find their niches within these big organizations. Yeah. We have manpower, we have the knowledge, we know all these deep details, and we know how to make things work. It's basically sometimes called the plumbing conferences. Yeah. So the plumbing that makes the internet happen, the plumbing that makes the platforms happen, yeah. that is still Web 1. That never changed to a Web 2. Definitely, the only definitely. time it started to change with the Web 2 was when Linux Foundation started and this cloud native stuff started. Yeah. But this is still kind of its own niche compared to how big plumbing still is. And the plumbing is long term. This is 30 years yeah. or so of work. Definitely, definitely. And it's it's really interesting to see that. And uh, I think we can all say that uh, we have uh, benefited from the ideals and the idealists who were behind Web1 in that, uh, you know, it's laid the foundation for, for something awesome, something much greater uh, that, that is incredible. Um, and now we're looking at the situation that we're in now. The, the here and now is that the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Googles of this world, you know, have this incredible monopoly, right? You have the situation where Google charges, I believe it is 30% on every app, uh, you, know, you know, when you use their payment gateway on Android. It's pretty similar with Apple. Uh, I don't want to be sued for, for my exact words here so i'm going to be really careful in saying that it is similar and there are different levels for certain for certain types of apps here but basically we have really big monopolies in charge and everybody else has to play by their rules i mean i just think that 30 percent is a whole lot for somebody to pay on all the work they do just because they hosted it on a particular platform um and you know i i just think again that that's a, a, a reason that's driving Web3 forward. Um, my question, my, my big question today is asking the question, why did we go from Web1 to Web2? And is Web3 the natural next step? And if we're doing that right. Uh, and I have a, I have a theory on this uh, that I'd like to, to share. But before I do that, let's, let's, I'd like to share a little bit of why I think Web2 took over from Web1. One of the reasons is uh, it has to do with user integration. I remember back in the day, the social web was entirely forums, right? And these forums were really, really elitist. Now, if you guys have ever been on Reddit or Stack Overflow, uh, you know you you know that it is uh, you know if you don't read every rule, if you don't cross every uh, T and dot every I, you run into major trouble. You know what I mean? Uh, they are really, really picky people. And what Facebook essentially did is it democratized the web and it made it possible for ordinary people to come on board. And I'm going to pitch for Facebook here and that seems like a really odd position. But back in the day, non-technologists didn't have a stake at the table. None at all. Uh, I was a non-technologist back then. 
Uh, now I'm a technologist, and so I'm in the bubble, but then I was outside of the bubble. And I remember how hard it was for people outside of the bubble to even get a seat at the table. You know, uh, let's say you're not caring about, you know, proper grammar in your titles on your forum post. You would get immediately deleted and banned and whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, it was harassment and it was, it was very frustrating uh, to be subject to that. And what Facebook did is it brought it down to this micro level. Uh, same with Twitter, uh, where we're, we're sharing these instant tweets and stuff like this. And that really democratized the web and it made it accessible for the non-technologists, the people who aren't just there for writing essays like myself, you know what I mean? Now I'm one of those people, but you know, uh, how do I say this? It made it open and or, uh, uh, enabled it for everybody. But it also did something really profound, is it took away this difference in user interface. So it used to be that you go to every single website, you guys all know this because we're experiencing this now, you go to CNN.com, you go to BBC.com, you go to FoxNews.com or whatever you want to say for just news, right? And every single one of these has a different user interface. You know, this way of thinking about the internet, it has been absolutely necessary uh, because nobody could go out there and create the internet right it was it would be a ludicrous idea to say i'm going to create the internet so we had to empower everybody but this also means that when a person goes from one website to another they have to rethink about the user interface right what is that hamburger menu sign what does it mean like does it open a menu right if anybody has seen those three lines in a mobile app we now know all of us here know and we take for granted that we know that that is a menu button but there are a whole lot of people for that, that level of confusion is, is beyond thinking. If you're here in Discord, you're in the 1%. I want to tell you that because I've tried. I have many other communities. Um, in fact, I've led communities to the scale of 7.4 million people in the past. And I've tried to migrate some of those to Discord in the past. And they just told me unequivocally, we cannot understand this platform. We are unwilling to go on it. And we are unwilling to try because whenever we tried it, they were, weren't willing to understand it because they couldn't. It was too complicated. Just Discord was way beyond it. And it's, I think, for these kind of people that a Web2 empowered them in a, in a massive, tremendous way to be part of the conversation. So one of the big things it solved was usability, right? It made the internet usable for the majority of people. And I think that um, the perspective, and this is one of the challenges, and I don't, I'm not challenging Web3 as an idea, but I'm challenging the fundamentals of how we're, we're thinking about building Web3. Uh, I think the idea that we are going to go back to decentralization is a misnomer. I actually think that the natural evolution of things as it's happened has been the result of natural forces pushing it in this direction, and that the impetus is to continue in this direction and not to retreat from it. Um, and that's a scary prospect because I, okay, let's just, I, I'll like, I'll take a little aside here right now. And again, I don't want to say the exact number here. I've seen some advertising from core, uh, core games that says that Roblox, uh, takes 74% of their creators cut. I feel like there's more than that that's being taken. So if you guys don't know, Roblox is a platform in which anyone can make games, right? You make a game, you upload it to their platform, you can get players. 
Um, the thing is that you not only need to pay 74% throughout the fees, and I'm saying this is what their advertisements are saying at Core Games, just to be safe here. Um, but basically, uh, there's another thing, is you need to pay some of the money you earn to advertise your game in order to be surfaced, right? And we were actually developing on a platform called Wildlands before, and we quit in part because they decided they were going to take a 66% cut, around 66%. I'm not going to get into all the details again. Don't sue me. That is a rough number. Uh, you know, basically, how do I say this? That was absurd. Just imagine a world in which we live in a metaverse where every single job we do, every single interaction we have, every single piece of trade we do is taxed by that metaverse company at a significant rate. That is a disaster. And I think that the impetus we have does not lead us again to decentralization. It actually leads us to, again to centralization. But before I go into my next points, I'd love to hear from all of you guys. So I want to tell you guys, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, we are live right now on Discord. If you guys want to be a part of what's going on, go to ocem.cc slash socials, and you'll be able to join in. We actually open this up for everybody in the community you guys who are listening could be here on this podcast and, and be part and ask questions. So I'm going to open it up right now. I've given a bunch of you guys permissions. If you have the Meta Labs tag, you can jump up and share your two cents. Just going to quickly jump in and say, yeah, yeah the interesting part about this is that we now see uh, like both Web1 folks and Web2 folks take over their business models to the Web3. So on one side, as you say, we have roadblocks with uh, basically Web2 uh, models, but we also now have the gaming industry coming in, yep. which have been migrating. Like the gaming industry has observed Web2 and has been saying like, hey, they make a bunch of cash. We need to do that too. Yep. So you have seen this a lot as well in like AAA games over the past years. Oh my gosh. And yes. this is, <laughs> They're coming in. Yeah, the, 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 this has been a big... Um, fight like if you want to have a big recount of it, there's Jim Sterling. Yeah, it's been doing a lot of it, and from the Web One folks as well, this same thing has happened. Um, mainly with the hosting companies and the operations companies that use the open source software, where we now have the Fediverse. Yeah, which ends up with foundations and the smaller organizations hosting software stacks like Matrix, Matrix, which is okay. a follow-up from IRC, which does all the open source community communications. So before that, all the chat for like coordination on certain software projects in the open source space was in IRC. Yeah. And there was a couple companies operating those. And now they start to be migrated to the Matrix company, which now has their new federated protocol up which okay. also has government support. So certain governments have their own um, closed version of it, uh, especially the French government has a encrypted messaging system now okay. uh, as the matrix system. Interesting. I did not know that. Actually. And several other companies started to fill that niche like Mattermost, which I have as a private communication system for my company. Okay. And all these kinds of things come in and they bring, they bring their business model. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course, we also have like new business models coming up from the web free side where it's a lot about the finance people coming in. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we have tie-ins between shares and how shares are valued. Yeah. And how things are balanced in like funds. So mm -hmm. they are trying to reinvent funds with these blockchains. So the blockchain kind of becomes the fund, and the project it pays out to is basically uh, defined by what you invest into. So you invest into a project, pays out, and if it fails, the rest of the fund is going to balance it out, kind of. Definitely, definitely. I want to read something out from the Twitch chat. Uh, thank you so much. Again, if you guys can't speak and would like to share something, you can go ahead and pop a message on Twitch. Uh, uh, you can see it in hashtag news if you're in the Discord right now and click on our Twitch and uh, you know drop a little message. Uh, Wubsoul says, it would be a bad thing to have. However, taxation isn't totally bad. Uh, it's uh, bad in a big scale. Well, here's the thing. It would be double taxes, right? We wouldn't only owe taxes to the government, but we would be paying as much as we would need to pay to be allowed to be on these platforms. And that for me is a very scary prospect. And I think we should all be concerned about that prospect. Um, and, you know, my biggest thing, and this is this goes to your next question here, um, is, is crypto the answer? Is, is the blockchain the answer to that? Or is something else the answer? And I'll, I'll get into that in just a moment, but I'm just laying the foundation. The reason I'm talking about, we're talking about this background here is we're laying the foundation on what's happened um, to say, okay, based on what's happened, does it make sense to think this is the next step? What is the next step, you know? Uh, so Krynak says, uh, what is the main point here we're questioning uh, in a TLDR format? Taxation of transactions on, uh, on a corporate platform? Uh, basically, there is, I believe the future of human civilization is digital, right? And if that digital world is privatized in its entirety from end to end, we have a corporation that will be responsible for our speech. And we have a corporation that will uh, be enabled to tax us for our, you know, for anything. They'll, they'll have too much control. And one of the reasons I believe this is because of the network effect and how it's created bubbles uh, that are absolutely massive as far as uh, allowed these institutions to centrally uh, keep the people. Uh, I'm going to go back and and put that in context of Facebook. Now, uh, I know that most of the people listening and most of the people here are probably not avid Facebook users. But what we must know is that we are the exception. If you look at the stats, you know, Facebook usage is incredible and it's very, very high. And if you're in any social networking niche, your biggest competitor is a Facebook group. Uh, the reason is Facebook has the people. And if you want to compete with Facebook, it's very difficult because they already have the people. And if you're going to teach people a new user interface and get them onboarded on your platform, unless they're technologists, it's incredibly difficult. Technologists will jump over easy because they love new technology, right? They'll do it because it's new, right? But we are the exception. The rule is that let's say you want to talk about, you know, some Nintendo game, well, even gaming is, is technology. Let's, uh, uh, you want to talk about eggs and baking, okay? Baking and eggs, uh, whatever. <laughs> you know, you, you make a, a group about that on a website. Your biggest competitor is Facebook, right? And the, the, the power of the networking effect is, is as follows. And I'll, I'll go back to the, to, to the history of it. So AT&T back in the day made it so that if you wanted to call anybody in the AT&T network, you had to have an AT&T phone. Right. And so this made it so that you wouldn't want a phone from another company. 
you know, because it would be valueless. If you if you had a phone from a third party provider and you couldn't call 90% of the network, right? What would be the point? Um, I believe that the, the forces that pushed us toward Web uh, 2 will push us further to a more coalesced, more monopolized web in which a network effect will allow a virtual experience to arise, which has the people and which will trap people from not being able to escape that situation. I know I disagree with a lot of my counterparts in the technology space about that. But my biggest thing is in my studying of the metaverse is I believe the number one reason people haven't got on the metaverse today is because of usability. I think about, for example, teachers who lost their jobs or were, were moved to online, right? They're using Zoom today. But the power of a, of a digital classroom, a virtual classroom where you're in VR is incredible. Why aren't they doing that? It's the usability is a real problem, right? And the usability has been the number one issue as far as the adoption of virtual worlds since Second Life has been a thing 18 years ago. I talk about this often and it was an embarrassing moment, but I accidentally, this is a true story, I accidentally took off my pants in, in Second Life and I ran around for 20 minutes unable to put them back on. Um, it, that's not a situation and I'm a tech, you know, I'm in this space, right? Um, how do I say this? That's not a situation which normal people can tolerate. It, it, it's really much too difficult. And Web3 has proposed a decentralized solution, which is not only less usable uh, and less adoptable and less understandable than Web1 was, uh, it is massively consequential. So if you make a mistake, you might have your microphone on in front of 20 people and might be saying something really embarrassing. And if you talk with ordinary people and put them before technology, it's like they believe there's a big red button everywhere. And if they push it, it will just blow up the world, right? And that there's a real sense of palpable fear when it comes to uh, metaverse technologies. Hey, Alex, jump in the if you want. Hey, yeah, the red button thing is just so true. Yeah. Um, I, I you know, I'm trying to show my mom how to copy and paste, you know, which is obviously one of the easiest things for us to do. Yeah. And she's just so afraid that the computer's going to break if she does the wrong thing. It's like, you know, just press any button, you know, what are you doing? Come on. <laughs> exactly. Try, you know, like, oh, I don't, I don't want, I don't want something to go wrong. It goes wrong. We'll just turn it off and turn it back on again. Yeah. It's no big deal. We don't understand. Like we cannot comprehend that we know we can push. I could push every button on this keyboard except for when I'm live on a recording. <laughs> With that exception, I can push every button on this keyboard and nothing's really going to go wrong. That's unfixable, you know, but for them, every button on the keyboard that they don't understand and they haven't yet pushed is the nuclear button. <laughs> and um, when it comes to, uh, you know, virtual avatars and virtual space running around I don't mean to be crude with this again, running around without clothing like I was, running around with your mic on by accident, which is so common, you know, is a real set of embarrassment. And um, the idea that we're going to have this decentralized network with a plethora of virtual experiences where people are have to be like born all over again to understand all of the controls in all of these is one of the big reasons I believe the entire force that's pushed us toward Web3 will push us toward a potential of a situation from which we cannot escape. And that's why I created Awesome and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because we might end up in a situation where there's a metaverse which has the adoption of millions of people and which uses the network effect to keep out competitors in which we are both taxed for our existence 
and you know we no longer experience as a human species the freedom that we have today you know to go out there and curse the air if we wanted to because everything we say will be recorded and used against us in the future and i don't mean to be dystopian about this right but i'm really passionate about history and i studied history and nothing will make you more nervous about people than studying history um i think about very simple things and i'd like to not dwell on this subject in too much detail so warning for those guys i'm going to go into a difficult subject here but uh you know the census that was done in germany um you know helped hitler find the jews uh because it was a piece of data and on there he could figure out if people are jewish or not so here you have benign data something that is not a big deal being used to incredible vicious ferocious harm for which i believe we're still capable of today uh, those people who believe we have somehow evolved over the last hundred years to be, be no more the savages we were then i believe we're the same today as we always were just look at online games and look at look at the destruction uh people recon each other all the time for no given reason when people have the opportunity they'll take it anyway the point is data data whoever controls the data at one point gets power to control people and that power is is a dangerous power to give it's a dangerous power to have and the question is what's going to push us which direction and how do we how do we present a viable alternative now crypto says well what we need is trust okay what we need is the ability to trust a system that is not controlled by anybody and so the basic premise and i'm going to share this but this is a big one i'll, I'll stop for just a moment because I don't this is I'm about to get into the big thesis here and I don't want to uh, not give everybody an opportunity so if you have a thought go ahead and share it I'm also going to read at least a few of these on the uh, on the uh, what's it called um, that I'm reading from the stream here uh, Raiden says I think it is foreign con uh, um, okay foreign countries tax their own and the American government doesn't get any of that so the digital people should only be taxed by the digital people like with crypto good point well actually i'd i'd, I'd beg to differ on this uh Raiden. uh the united states having the global reserve currency because um the united states dollar is used everything is denominated in dollars and most transactions go through the united states everything has to be converted in and through dollars and that creates an inordinate demand for dollars and that allows the federal government of the united states to print money in a very exorbitant way and not pay a price for that and so they actually do tax the world but it's not a visible tax or a tax that's understandable uh i'm not actually a person who necessarily disagrees with that i i'm more of the zero-sum thinker when it comes to uh, geopolitics and therefore uh, i think that we benefit from the peace inordinately like in a really big way uh, we benefit from the peace that we now have and so a little tax doesn't doesn't necessarily hurt with that I'm, I'm not even going to go into this big debate but basically uh, I disagree that we are not taxed on multiple levels uh, there uh, Krynak says I know a guy who works for a crypto company I was thinking this morning that the way he is uh, paid is a kind of form of tax evasion from what I've heard he gets it paid entirely in crypto so I guess when it comes to taxes, he has zero income until he converts that into a taxable currency. Either that or it's taxed. However, being paid in stock is taxed. Not sure uh, how that works, to be honest. Uh, actually, Alex, you'll be able to answer that one, right? Uh, you might know. Yes. Um, when you are when you are paid in crypto, uh, yeah, the government 
definitely gets a cut of any kind of crypto transaction if there's like any profit that's made. So um, when you're paid that USD calculate, that is calculated in USD and you'll be taxed in the USD value the day that you're paid. Um, if you if you hold it for even a few days and it goes up in value and then you you buy something with it, that's actually considered a capital gain and you'll be taxed on the profit that you made in between getting paid with it in the USD value and the USD value of what you uh, of it when you when you you know when you bought a coffee or whatever. So it's definitely not taxation unless he's like not reporting that he got paid or anything like that. But like let's presume he's like reporting his taxes correctly. It's it's not tax evasion uh, at all, unfortunately. To be clear, um, crypto can be used for tax evasion, uh, but. Uh if you're being an honest human being, you shouldn't be doing it that way. And um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's harder, analysis, isn't it? Yeah, blockchain analysis has come a long way. And then all the exchanges are required to uh, report all all transactions to the government. And uh, they've got IP addresses attached to it. Chances are if you brought money onto, uh, onto the blockchain at all, you had to do KYC at one point and You'll, they'll be able to put the uh, they'll be able to put the pieces together. I mean, it's been you know it's been a good ten years. This stuff's been around, so they've been working on it. Uh, let me see here. I would like to read out what Websol is saying. Crynox tax shouldn't be paid for money to money transfers. Isn't that a loophole though? I'm just going to skip down a little bit. Uh, I think Raiden answers their question in a pretty similar way to Alex here. Uh, and then Websol says, does the company pay the taxes or are they letting them work illegally? That's the question to Crynex from Websol. Uh, but that, that's a conversation there happened. So let's continue on our own. Go ahead, guys. Yeah, I think the interesting part comes in when it is compared to shares and how yep. it is like with things like vesting contracts and things like that. Because of course, that's also going to be your capital gain, but then you make a capital gain in a um, cryptocurrency rather than in US dollar shares. So now you've got to either bring that in clearly or figure out how on earth you're going to do that without being screwed up between uh, currency fluctuations. Yeah, tell me about it. This uh, is what we have Dark Mark for. <laughs> he, he, is, he is a lawyer here at Awesome, and uh, he is great with figuring out that kind of thing because uh, it's beyond me for sure. Yeah, same here. No, it, it comes in a lot of like this uh, currency thing because I know there a lot of the guys that really do like laundering and stuff, they run their own infrastructure on both ends and basically the cryptocurrency is just a tunnel. Let's so, not get into how to launder money. That might not be good for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not good, but it's definitely not something you can organize yourself. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, th that's definitely also there. Like uh, the regulations comes in same way. Uh, it comes from normal things, at least for permissionless blockchains. The idea because that it is the Wild West is not entirely true anymore as far as crypto is concerned. There's there's a lot more going on in this space and if if you want to do stupid things, um, just know that there's someone a lot smarter than you making sure you don't do stupid things. Is that, is oh, yeah, that the that's, conclusion? That's, that's, that's the conclusion, yes. Yeah. And there is definitely also more legal stuff coming up with the permissioned blockchains, which are basically completely different technology. Yeah. 
as the traditional institutes start to use similar technologies, but they take out the like proof of work to normal human processes gotcha, to gotcha. verify who's in the network. So those kinds of things will probably come up more, but there it's more like, oh, it's cool tech infrastructure that allows payment more easily, like PayPal, without it being a platform. I want to remind everybody, uh, you can request to speak even if you don't have the role. So if you click that little button, we will let you on the stage. Uh, this is your last chance to get in the comment before I go into the big spiel. Uh, so definitely do that. Hey, I've, uh, oh, did I invite sent? There we go. Jump on in. Feel free. Sengman, I believe it is. And Shadow, I'm, I'm inviting you both on the platform. Feel free to jump in. Thank you. Yeah, this is Sean. And hey, Sean? Uh, I, I love I love a lot of things that you're sharing. In fact, I think one of the biggest premise that you've brought up is the idea of the onboarding process. And if the onboarding process is very unique on every experience that you go into, how will the how will the masses adopt a true metaverse? Exactly. And I really think that we're we're trying to take current tech and trying to imagine how to use that technology to solve for the metaverse, where I believe there's tech that still needs to be solved for to allow a true metaverse, which then entail a different process. Hang um, on, hang on for me one second, Sean. Can you just back up from the mic just a little bit? I'm just trying to get great quality on the podcast. Just a tiny bit. Yes. That's a lot can, better. Can awesome. that, is that better? That's a lot better. Thanks. Cool. Keep going. Um, so I love I think, it. I think, I think the metaverse, we're trying to force current technology to mm -hmm. make the metaverse happen versus rethinking what would the technology be necessary to enable mass adoption in a large virtual coordinate system that really yeah. bridges all AR and VR. And so the same way that you have standards with the internet that allows us to build a website in a standard way where people could build their own browsers, they could build their own modules and tools to allow you to build a, a website, but yet the onboarding process of a website is pretty standard across the world. Yeah. And it allows you to not only publish one, but allows that interoperability in, in a sense, right? And I actually think it should be a optional interoperability, not forced interoperability. Yeah. Um, because I do believe crypto and blockchain, all these things are literally tools. Um, they're not going to dictate what the metaverse is. Yeah. I think developers will use those tools based on the type of experience or application they're delivering to the consumer. And so it's not about forcing um, decentralization of data. If that is something that you want to offer based on a feature set, then I think that's something that should happen, but not necessarily forcing these technologies into these worlds. Yeah, and um, we're actually, I'm actually the uh, CEO of a company called RP1. And okay. we're actually thinking things very, very differently and figuring out how can a metaverse actually be shardless users and shardless applications. Interesting. And the reason why that's super important is from a tech standpoint, if you have to shard, you know, individuals, and this is a big gaming issue, is yeah. that you basically have to, you know, you, if you have 100 people on a server, you have to basically replicate that serve for the next 100 people, and there's no connectivity between those users. Yeah. And so the challenge that you have in a true metaverse is if you want a massive platform that has literally everyone on this planet interacting all over the place, imagine like a digital twin of this planet, you're going to have to rethink these technologies to enable that process. More importantly, you have to solve the sustainability aspect because yeah. the amount of servers necessary to actually handle these worlds at scale is just not possible. And most people are waiting for more hardware solutions. Yeah. And uh, we've actually created ultra efficient software to enable a massive amount of people on a single server. So imagine 64,000 awesome. people in a single world. But I just think metaverses, I think we're trying to conform technologies today to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna continue to be a rut 
and I think you've mentioned a lot of the problems just in your dissertation. So I'm definitely uh, looking forward to hearing your thesis and kind of what you're working on. Awesome. I definitely also, want to give Shadow a chance what's to going jump on. in. So from, from the tech mm -hmm. side, I've, uh, you're talking similar to something on uh, NVIDIA's Omniverse, I, I sense. So you probably also had to solve for latency and but without InfiniBand. So we guess you don't have InfiniBand in the things simply because of exp uh, expensiveness and like because NVIDIA now owns the bloody thing. Uh, so how are, can you go a, a bit into detail for tech or is it Samuel, do you think it's too tech-wise if we go a bit into tech details or should Sean In the interest of time, uh, we are going to have another one. We, we will have one of these every week okay. and we have an opportunity to deep, deep dive. But I want to give Shadow just a quick quick chance here. Go ahead, Shadow. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, just real quick, I would like to, as always, point out the user experience you know, considerations here. Yeah. And um, I think an important point in terms of centralization and decentralization is that there's always a, a, a sort of need for either one right so sometimes it is good to centralize but other times it's not and for the metaverse i think we're going to go through several cycles of centralization and decentralization um you know take media for example you know you had a centralization of different types of media groups um over the last couple of decades and then you had decentralization with the internet and then re-centralization with streaming and things like that um and it's going to be very similar for things like virtual worlds, for how you navigate them, for inventory, for avatars. You know, depending on the user needs, will de will determine what kind of uh, user experience you'll need, and whether or not that's going to be a centralized one or a decentralized one. So I don't want us to like think about the standardization or centralization as if it's one kind of goal it's it's kind of like a what what tosi was saying in terms of the technology it's, it's a tool uh, which may or may not be useful for different use cases and something i've been uh, trying to say the point i don't know Good. if there was something going on with my mic or okay. whatever it was but like uh, in apple's case when they came out with the iphone the iphone touch the actual first touch screen was that was one of their things in the pitch or steve jobs put in the pitch was that all these all the smartphones and stuff were coming out but they all had different controls and different buttons and were very complicated and yep. made the user interface very terrible so they came out with the touch phone so that you could actually have a standardized thing and then you could even change it but you'd still have it on the same platform yep. and then in terms of the history which you mentioned before i think if you, if you go back and look it goes from a period of centralization into a decentralization then back to a centralization for whatever reason yep. i think it's just a kind of a process that we end up doing throughout our history it's just kind of inevitable i might i might disagree with you i think it's it's real forces that push us towards centralization and away from it and th there is a swing back and forth i actually think uh, of it in the way that reality dictates the outcomes rather than our philosophy uh, although philosophy plays a role Right. I think reality is in charge and I think crypto is going through a bit of a moment with that. And it has been for a while in that it is striving for certain ideals which it can't accomplish. And, um, you know, it's it's being hit by reality. And I think it will continue to be hit by reality. Go ahead. I would actually agree with you on that one. I had I had a, uh, a conversation with a very idealistic uh, crypto person uh, yesterday uh, and I just, you know, it felt sometimes like I was talking to a wall where they're like, yep. you know, people, you know, people want decentralization. People are going to, you know, people are going to flock to this, you know, as the technology improves. Like, buddy, people just want what 
is convenience. Like if people really want centralization, mm -hmm. they would still be using Facebook after we found out all that awful stuff about what Facebook's doing with our data and all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. They would be like, oh, you know, I'm gonna do what's right and you know not use the platform. Like, hey, you know, this is how I, this is how I look at my aunt's uh, pictures of of my cousins. You know, yeah, it's it's easy. So. You know, people, you know, people could just write more letters and call their aunt more often, but that's not what they do. They, they use Facebook because it's convenient. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really think that uh, there's a tremendous price to be paid if we go down this right route with privacy, and yet the consumer is not at all mentioning privacy in their wallet. And they, they, they care about it with their voice, but in, in practice, privacy is not something that is impacting the bottom line oftentimes uh, in, in a way that it should, you know? I mean, people aren't leaving Facebook in droves uh, because of what Facebook has done in certain areas. And I'm not for or against Facebook. That's not my point here. But the, my point is to say uh, people don't put their money where their mouth is when it comes to privacy. And that's unfortunate because there would be a tremendous impetus toward certain things if that was the case. But it's not the case. And I think we're in the camp. Most of us are probably in the camp where we do put our money where our mouth is when it comes to privacy. But we have to know we're, we're in the we're in the very, very small minority. But I'd like to jump in um, just before because uh, we we've been going a while and I I, uh, I want to deliver what I have promised here. And it is this. It is that basically um, the blockchain, crypto, I'm, I'm throwing them all in here because there's a lot of words here, but I'm throwing this all in the realm of what Web3 is today. Uh, the premise is that we can create trusted architecture by decentralizing it, right? So because we can't trust Facebook and Google and banks, what we need to do is decentralize the architecture and then that will create trust because we're not depending on any individual person. However, decentralization, this is the, the three things I, I talk about it. One niggling point. It doesn't yeah. create trust. It's that we would be in a trustless environment. We don't have to trust anybody because we just know that it's like, you know, working this certain way because the, the, that's the way the blockchain works. Like you don't have yeah. to take anybody's word for it. So I just want to, that's kind of a slight, Exactly, exactly. Uh, so basically, crypto is trying to solve the trust problem. And you've said it better than I, I was saying it. Crypto is trying to say, how do we make it so that we don't have this trust problem with centralized institutions like banks and like big tech companies? We don't trust them. We trust only, you know, a large consensus or something like that. Um, crypto is solving for the trust problem. And it solves that problem through decentralized architecture. Right. It's saying we're going to give everybody the ability to do part of this. Right. But decentralization is terrible for usability. Web one is a great example of that. And I believe the usability problem that drove us toward Web Web two proves over and over again that decentralization is terrible for usability. It has never helped with privacy for all those people who believe that Web three will solve the privacy problems. Where were you in Web Web one? Right. When we you go to websites today, it's the Facebook pixels and the, the Google analytics that the web, uh, the, the webmasters are putting in to their websites that are the ones tracking you. Right. So it's been enabled through a decentralized web. And as long as the system is decentralized, there's always a hole to exploit. Uh, and so decentralization has never helped with privacy. And if privacy and data protection is really important to the future of human existence, which is, you know, my thesis and why I'm why I'm in this space, uh, decentralization of architecture doesn't help with that. And it's also terrible for flexibility and iteration. 
So you, it doesn't have the ability to change with the times. And uh, as somebody, we're developing games here and we're learning more and more every day. And uh, how do I say this? We're learning really quickly that if you don't listen to the customer, you end up creating a product for nobody. And oftentimes what we see with crypto, and I say this with all respect, uh, is that they're creating products that nobody wants to use. And the reason for that is they, they come from the point of ideals rather than the point of the user. And I have been having my butt kicked for the longest time right now because I came from the point of ideals rather than the user. And, uh, you know, that's a lesson I've had to learn the hard way. And I hope we don't have to learn it again. Here's my rethinking of this. And I really agree with what Sean said, for example. Uh, th there's going to be iterations of this. Nobody has the answer. We've got to find the full answer. But I believe that if we can create a different sort of organization in which that that single organization is organized differently to a, a corporation. You can have the benefits of centralization without the drawbacks. That's my thought. So my, my idea is web, web three as it is, is not working. But if we decentralize how the organizations are run, um, we can have the, the speed and the iteration of centralization without the drawbacks of having to trust them as long as there's something real there, right? So one thing you always talk about, Alex, is that with DAOs, uh, you have smart contracts that are not able to implement the decisions of the decentralized consensus, right? You you have people coming together on a consensus and then the founder can do whatever they want to do, right? So I think right yeah. now, this means that we have to be within a legal framework. If there's got to be legal consequences to breaking the charter. And so crypto isn't solving for that yet. Maybe one day it will, uh, but it hasn't solved for that yet. And you know, I really think that uh, innovation on this front is what's really important. And one of the reasons well, we're doing what we're doing with OSIN is that. If you, have to, mm -hmm. if you have to go appeal to authority if things go wrong on the DAO, yeah. th then it's not real a form of governance. If you have to run to mom and dad, then you're, you're not really independent, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I, I totally agree with that. And I think we're not yet independent. You know, we are in a situation where we have to deal with the reality um, of where we're at and go about this in an iterative process, right? So a legal framework for an organization that creates a charter that has stipulations that it has to hold to. And then we're trusting not just one, but multiple of these organizations and that being the future. Um, so this is where we're at with OSIM and we're trying to figure stuff out in that regard. How do you, for example, create a large decentralized co uh, collective that creates bespoke centralized products with a focus on usability and adoption. Um, that's what we're thinking about. That's what that's our focus and our way of thinking. And uh, one of the ways we do this, I'll just give one example here, is we're not raising capital. So we're not beholden to any investors, but the people who work on the games we create, games being the the part of virtual world technology that is functional and usable today, in my humble opinion, um, the games we create uh, are created through labor capital. The people that make them are investing their time and they're also reaping 100% back of the time they've invested because, uh, for example, Caesar here is an artist uh, with with Osum and um, he actually will earn a royalty uh, based on his contribution. And it, it comes from a royalty pool of 100% of the income uh, of what what is created together. I, I won't get into all the specifications and all the details, but my basic thought is this. 
Web3 is decentralizing the wrong thing. It's decentralizing the architecture on the end user level. And I think what we need to do is change how organizations exist. And that is my theory as to how we can move forward with this. What do you guys think? I, I think to to your point and like talking back to history again, that was part of thing like colonies and such like in the United States or in other places or whatever else that mm -hmm. we realized that they had their individualism, they had their own ideals and whatever else and stuff. But at some point they realized that if we wanted to really get things going, we wanted to actually do more and still maintain our sort of individualism, whatever else we could still do it at under a nation and have a centralized government where like you're taking care of these things that happen with infrastructure and whatever else and stuff, but we still have our own governance. We still have our own freedoms and whatever else and stuff. And I think to what you're kind of alluding to, what you're hoping to do is kind of create this sort of, you know, online web three nation where yes, we're all under this sort of umbrella sort of deal, but we still have our individuals with uh, individualism within it. We still have our own freedoms within that space, but we have this space. We're all within this space so that we all have the same kind of language. We all have the same sort of standards and whatever else and stuff so that we can communicate with each other, and provide that usability for everybody and make things just better for everyone overall. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? Um, some, uh, there, there's some elements there, but really, I think that's really big for us. So really, Awesome is a research experiment and it's a research organization to understand what is the problem that we can solve right now in the here and now that actually solves the problem. So whereas technologists, um, I don't want to just throw all technologists on the bus, so don't get me wrong. Technologists are often, um, working from the point of ideals. Um, we are working from the point of okay what can we do right now that will have an impact on this metaverse space that works so compromise solutions and one of the ways we're doing that is we are building a large decentralized collective and seeing if we can create a model by which a decentralized collective actually does something that is impactful in this case that we're making a game right and if we can make a game that is adopted by a lot of users it's a proof of concept that we could build more significant things and it could be totally in the hands of the users and it could be owned by the users and like uh, again with the 100 percent of revenue thing uh, the weird way we function is that um we don't have a tension between employer and employee because 100 percent of the revenue goes to the employee and they donate back the percent that they think is fit for the organization so our our survival depends on pleasing the individuals in the organization and so there's no tension between employer and employee it's a really different, it's a different beast almost. I can call it the generosity system because when people sign up, they sign up um, and they make a decision up front on how much of their effort and hard work and the monetization of their effort and hard work will actually go back to the organization. And I don't have the number on, on us, but it, it has, the, the numbers have been averaged between 40 to 60%. Uh, of what we pay people is donated back to the organization to make the organization succeed, which is mind boggling, mind boggling. Well, that's a good chair. Yeah, absolutely. And that allows it to function because we all know businesses have expenses that you can't predict for. And it's not just about a product. There are expenses uh, besides the product, but people are incredibly generous. So, uh, especially with salaries, you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's Go ahead, Alex. Okay, so I kind of 
I kind of want to address the idea of either DAOs being like a new form of governance model mm -hmm. or, or just even the notion that it's like so easy to come up with gover governance models, oh. you know, <clears throat> it's tough. I was, thinking, I was thinking recently that when like how crypto people have been saying like, you know, oh, DAO, DAOs are like, you know, a new governance model and it solves like all these issues. It's like, are you telling me that you put the entire subject of political science out of business? Is that what you're telling me you did? Because uh, that's I, I was about to say the same thing is like, I've gone through it too many times to say like, you, you can, it can't be easy. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, oh if it gosh. was so easy to come up with governance models, they would do it maybe a little more often considering it's their job and they devote their lives to it. But like, you know, we see, you know, there was uh, you know, there was uh, Hobbes with the uh, social contract um there's uh we've we're, we're still stuck on uh first past the po post voting here in america but there's you know a few other types of voting right now but yep. it's just not easy to come up with new governance models yeah and and you, and you take a closer look at DAOs, and it's really just like all the same old forms it's, it's direct democracy it's uh you know it's it's all these different types and you know DAOs are really like a governance method yeah. But like there just hasn't been any progress made uh, in, in the way that, you know, people have been, I don't know, kind of crowing about like, oh, look at this like new, new. At this point, Discord crashed for everybody on it. So it's a little bit of a jump, but he tries to recover what he's talking about here. I want to keep hearing you were talking about uh, how DAOs were not actually making a change here and that, you know, it's not yeah, so easy it's, as people think. Exactly. It's just a shiny new version of all the all the things that we've we've already had um, in as governance models in in human history. I, as you were saying, yeah. you know, this, uh, you know, humans don't don't really change in, in our nature. And uh, so and, th and then I said, yeah, so if. <laughs> If you if you do figure out this new governance model that lets yep. groups of people like actually do useful things, please let us know. <laughs> I, I will tell you because this is this is a big thing, um, and this is where my focus has been in the past, and, and I've absolutely got my butt kicked for many many years. I'll just I'll just lead you guys back to uh, uh, something we did a little bit uh, ago. Um, in 2016, I made I made a gaming clan, a republic. Okay, so. I started researching this in with gamers because you have to have people. You can't just govern nothing, right? So I decided I was going to do it with gamers in, in the idea of a gaming clan. We made it a republic. We had thousands of people. We made it a republic. And uh, it ended with uh, me doing a forced takeover of the government uh, to uh, cease its existence because it was actually, uh, it became tremendously toxic and problematic and I don't want to get into all the details because it was it was unfortunate but the reality was that the this democracy a failed. Dictator. he's a benevolent <laughs> dictator authoritarian yes uh, we, we, we actually I, I admit that I uh, I failed that run uh, but the here's one point where we have had a big breakthrough um, when it comes to making games together we have hundred and forty developers right now working together to make a game all of them working together under the idea of taking profit out of the game we're making. And so, and it's a functioning product. So that for me, I feel like is a massive, massive breakthrough. We are hitting a point where we're creating usable products 
with a large decentralized collective without all the hiccups and all the problems and it's there's a lot to be done but it there is uh, something here and if we are able to produce and publish a game that has any sort of traction i will take that as a big success and uh you know uh, maybe write in detail about the ups and the downs it's been fantastic uh, we have fantastic mentors, and it's part part of the reason is the incredible generosity of this community has has made it possible that it can be done. Uh, so uh, I'm just very excited to uh, to see that happen, and uh, I look forward to it. I mean, if you can get thousands of people to work around the world for their own interest, um, think about the potential. The thing is, they have to have some capital. If they if they need capital right now, they can't do it. Right, except for a hobby, they have to turn the hobby into um, into a career later on. But basically, the idea is, you know, what if a thousand people created something bigger than themselves and then split it between them for their own profit and interest, and done in an equitable way that works for all the people inside? Right now, this is a functioning existence on a small scale with what we're doing, and there's a functioning product, and I can show you guys. Uh, our functioning product, but it's a podcast, so that's the, that's a little bit of the problem. Um, but basically, uh, that is a revolution in if it works, a revolution in how things are done. Because one of the one of the problems, this is a you know everybody's been trying to solve this problem, and you know the 19th century has been about attacking each other for not solving this problem properly. Basically, we don't believe in using force by any means necessary. You know, like 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 it's a stupid idea to impose your idea on other people by force because that never gets anything done. Um, but basically, um, you know, if this does succeed to some degree. Uh, we're onto something because capitalism has one fundamental problem people have been trying to solve a long time, which is that when you when you have this tension between the employer and the employee, right? The employer is trying to compete with the employee for the for the gap between the value they create and the value they deserve, um, and this removes that gap, but it only works in a context of tremendous generosity and self-sacrifice. Uh, well, not 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 necessarily. I would say that typically leaders are paid, you know, quite a lot more. And in this case, uh, the leader would be would have to be willing to take a massive pay cut, right? Um, because they're they're doing it for the sake of the community. So does it work? It may work, uh, but it works with it with certain people in a certain context. And uh, I shouldn't have spoken too I soon. Feel like... <laughs> so here's the problem. Play. Is that there is a problem and it, there is yeah. it works. Uh, ep, ep, uh, Alex, if you want to go for the problem, I can bring the other examples in that similar or almost same fashion. That worked. Oh, oh, why don't you go ahead? I was I was going to point something else out, but I, I, I was enjoying what you were about to say. Uh, so this thing is actually almost same as the Linux, as Linux has done. Okay, tell us about it. And... So what happened in the initial phase, it was Linus Torvalds who copied as a, a study project Minix. Okay. So this is operating systems. He copied this. Uh, he called it his, his Minix. And yep. he went on and started to become the open source model. There is a couple of books written now over this kind of situation. So this is, this is open source business models. Yep. We're talking... Uh, 
the Cathedral and the Bazaar as a book suggestion if you want to Google it. Awesome. Thank you. And we're talking uh, the new Working in the Public. It's the new one. Working in the public. Um, can somebody write those down? Because I don't want to tap too much on my keyboard on on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I can write them down for you. That'd be awesome. These are the main things right now that are in in this space, and the main difference that has kind of made it succeed is letting companies in, mm -hmm. but not as a first tier. Okay. So many companies come in as a second tier by hiring these people and then getting certain parts, and this has then changed governance a bit yeah uh, in linux google has taken over certain parts of the kernel and there's been there's been a lot of fights about it yeah uh, especially because then of course somebody from an university comes up with something to solve a problem and then google comes in it's like oh we've been in our labs working with something very similar here's our ip in there yeah yeah um so if you study the Linux system, you can see a lot of things like this coming up. So this is a fight between Web two and Web one. I don't know. In I, there, where in I think there's there's it's a different it's a different path here. I think open source has actually solved a really interesting problem. It's a niche thing. Now it doesn't work for everything, right? You can't just open source everything. However, open source has created a way of creating things that function. Uh, at scale with people and it is exactly what we're talking about it is a form of governance yeah. that works you know however there's exactly. one problem the, with open the difference, source good yeah th there's problems in there uh, not just one <laughs> sure. and oh yeah that's like we've had it so long for now like we found i think almost any of those problems and there's definitely projects fail because of those problems yeah and there's projects that found solutions for them that succeeded. And Linux is kind of the one that has enough staying power to find solutions for them, yeah. go through them. Same as FreeBSD and in a more niche sense, Lumos, where I'm participating. Uh, Godot Engine is also a good example of it. And okay. a lot of it starts to go into like how open and things that are. So as I say, these two books go very deep into detail on, on this points. Definitely. So you may actually find a couple of solutions for your problem. You may find a couple of solutions for other things. And it's very interesting to see that it now also gets into other areas that aren't necessarily open source, but uh, around the same business model. So there's, there's a couple of problems with open source. And there's a reason we haven't adopted open source, although we're so close in our values. We kind of want to adopt open source. It is so close to what we do. Uh, that we just we have a love for the ideals and uh, there's there's one there's one thing that we see that is motivation and how it works in an open source community right so one of the troubles we see is that when it comes to open source when you create an open source product initially the founder has to be an engineer because the primary motivation for an open source project is as follows um, I've created something and you want to customize it. So you're going to take my code and add a little feature and that's going to allow you to customize it and make it special for your need. The only problem with that is that the primary motivation to do things within open source um, is actually um, one of extending the initial functional functionality. And because that's the primary motivation, usability suffers enormously. By and large, open source projects are not used by the public. Open source projects are merely used by engineers. They're sometimes 
in the technology that the public doesn't see built by engineers. However, actual users don't use open source projects in mass with very few exceptions. There are like minor exceptions. I would say um, Mozilla broke through at one point, but then also the competition wasn't very strong uh, in that, you know, it was the web one days. Uh, but here, here's the thing. Really, when it comes to usability, the incentives of open source lead to complexity. And that complexity it hinders um, the adoption of open source projects as usable by the masses and therefore has ruled it out as far as the metaverse in our thinking, not ruled it out. But I, I take a, a large statement in order to create an interesting conversation. Uh, it ruled it out for the metaverse. The metaverse not being adopted due to usability can't have a system of governance which leans to bad usability as one of its primary issues. Definitely for sure, like the main successful ones, open source wise, have adopted user usability and it has come up very recently with the most uh, Linux foundation project. So I've, yep. and you, you notice the difference between when you participate in a meeting on a open source project in the Linux foundation, which has user and usability at the core, yep. whereas you're looking at the old way of thinking kind of you could say it with like bringing in your own thing yeah this kind of have become two different parts of open source okay so you start you start seeing it splitting and become more tax yeah there's some that really have when you manage to have a good team in there yeah and you really manage the values as you say being with the user and making usability and you can bring it good success but this is not a guarantee if you're open but tell, source tell, tell just... me one tell me one open source i'm just putting this out there tell me one uh, there might be one or two but uh, tell me one uh, open source project that's used by the masses um not company led i should say it isn't the a main one ender for sure that's uh, foundation led that? although if you Lender. Lender. Interesting. I've Lender. never heard of that. It's the thing between Pixar. Well, it's not company led. It has a foundation as its leader. As its leader. Okay. Um, what you can also get there's a couple of desktop apps that are there. It's Darktable, Krita. That's K R I T A. Yeah. Um, that's a Photoshop clone kind of a deal, but. Uh, completely free but do the masses use them that's the question i mean none of these i've heard of Krita, yes oh Krita, well depends Krita's how you formulate masses I i'm talking yeah. not 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 one percent but the the 99 i'm talking like they use it like they use you know google search or they use it like they use facebook or they use it like they use uh we have people from every strata of society not just technologists using it that's hard because most people don't use any other than these applications. Right. And um, my point is that I think, for me personally, every time I use an open source application, I use so many of them, their power and their capability is far beyond, in many cases, the closed source alternatives. However, their usability is very low and therefore it's super relevant to people like me and people like us, but actually not relevant if usability is an issue. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, that, that's... 
that's that's the thing because you start to have the problem about user selection about usability okay especially krita has its own user selection because it is made for professional drawing right exactly so it has basically on the way to add a bit of complexity for the professional drawers because they asked for it yeah they donated for it yeah and this is kind of where you get to the point of like at some point you will never have a mass with any application yeah because your user base is just too fragmented between their different needs yeah well to counter my um, own point i think mozilla is is a counterpoint here Mozilla was better, faster, easier to use, open source, and very functional. Uh, so it is a point of, of, hey, they broke through and they had people from mostly every strata of society. I think, I, I don't know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the web one days, wasn't every strata of society per se, but to this day, Firefox is quite usable, right? I mean, it's not, people aren't leaving Firefox because it's usable. No, definitely. The point, however, is the scope of the application initially was also framed broad enough. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It could catch up because the scope was view a web-presented information page. Yeah. And everybody would like to view something, but not everybody would like to draw. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of like point where we at where everybody likes to receive and chat messages not everybody uh likes to compose a book absolutely absolutely anyway so i think these have been some really interesting thoughts uh on the idea of the metaverse any final thoughts before we uh, close it up for today i would submit for your consideration that Absolutely. for any significant change within you know pretty much anything especially within society and within this case we're talking about the web society or the internet society there are three major factors that are usually concern those the need the want and the gains you okay. want to have a usable open you know system but that's still able to be used um, we want, you know, we need, that's what we need, and we want it to be able to be used, to be a have, you have this technology, to be able to, you know, put, put whole use and whatever else and such. Yep. But the gains need to be there for people to be incentivized to be able to do those things, to be able to create those things, whatever that system of governments or standards or system, whatever it may be, that there needs to be the monetary gain there. So Absolutely. if you can get that, like if your system, your governance or someone else's or whatever else, if they can hit those three things and hit them in a great way, then it's a lot more likely that that change is going to come about. Absolutely agree with that 100%. Alex, go ahead. Uh, two things. First of all, I, I seem to recall you saying that some t people don't even necessarily need the monetary incentives. Like people yes. basically give you the money, people refuse it. This is a problem we've had. We've had people refuse to be paid, refuse to have a conversation about money. Um, and that is a was perplexing to me um, and very curious. And I'm very much learning and trying to understand. And it's it's very much, you know, I come from the world where I would NFT everything. Now, I know I'm I'm saying this live. I'm now being recorded saying that live. I am like I play games and I want to be the master and figure it out like 
And I love economics, right? So I'd play like economic games to learn about the economics of those games. Turns out yeah. I'm in the 1%. I, I thought I was just, everybody was into it, but this is a known thing in game design. We all think we are talking to everybody when we pitch our ideas. But in this case, I found I was spe speaking to nobody. Very few people like monetary things in games. Uh, and when it comes to game developers, you get a large overlap of people who want to contribute. They come from the gaming space. They love creating, but uh, money to them is a uh, something that they don't want to see involved. Uh, they feel it stifles their creativity, uh, their freedom, their... It brings them back to physical life, which they're escaping through creation. And and when I say games, it, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be, or it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary. Like you say, it doesn't necessarily have to be like an actual dollar amount or whatever else. If they yep. feel like they're getting something out of it, they're being paid you know, in some way to themselves that from enjoyment or satisfaction or whatever else and stuff. Those are still gains. They may not be monetary, but as far as the person's concerned, hey, I still get something out of this. I still appreciate this, even if it's nothing more than I made something or that someone knows I made something. Yeah. It's still a gain to them. You know, I want to point out that, you know, I have found that money destroys hobbies. Like once you, once you earn money for your hobby, it becomes a job and it just yeah. kind of sucks the fun out of it. Mm -hmm. um, I've had that happen a few different times, and I, I could see that as being as a big uh, as maybe a big reason why people would refuse to take money to do this thing that they so clearly enjoy, and you know they're spending all their time doing it. Yeah, so you would kind of poison it for them. I think so. I think you're you're onto it. And for me, I'm this strange creature where my hobbies are my work, and I love to do the same thing. <laughs> Right. So for me, I live in this world where uh, that for me is normal. And and so I want that to be the case. But I, I have found out to a great degree. I am big time the exception. And a lot of these NFT games, if they're not just a way to make money for the people there, uh, will find out the hard way that there's a very small niche for economic games uh, in that way. Economic games which are tied to real money, in my opinion. Entropia Universe is the example, if you guys don't know about that. It is the way, uh, it is the proof that there is a market, but it's a small market. It's not a large market. Yeah, just real quick, I want to um, kind of bring back that point about, uh, just the general point about crypto mm -hmm. and the metaverse and things like that in terms of user friendliness. I think a, a good thing to, there we go, sorry. Um, yeah, I think a, a good thing to ask is like, what? who are the people that we're solving a problem for? What yes. what problem are we solving, mm -hmm. right? And then how do we know it, we actually solved that problem for them? Oh, so thank you that you said your, it. Thank you that yeah, you said yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to your example of, uh, of building a game, you know, that, that already kind of constrains the user base to a certain type of people, yeah. um, which is good. Like you don't want to, you can't solve a problem by facing, by, you know, trying to solve for everybody. You have to start with a niche first. But um, for that game, like, okay, the people who are playing that game, what, what do they want out of this game, right? Yeah. Do they want to explore? Do they want to make friends? Do they want to do this? And then once you focus on that specific thing, then you can figure out, okay, what tools do we need to, to accomplish that? What tools do we need to make friends, to, to create on this uh, in this game? Things like that, yeah. all right? And that's how you kind of solve that user user experience problem is directly going after that that key problem rather than trying to you know figure out these grand you know governance models mm -hmm. and things like that people will will use crypto if they realize oh wow i can use this to for instance i don't know make yeah. a friend or somehow i don't know but um 
yeah, that's what we have to make really obvious for people. Really Other convenient. than being speculative right now, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> much of crypto isn't solving problems for people, right? It's a exactly. speculative asset in which people are gambling. But when it comes to solving those individual niche problems, people are are not getting their problems solved. And we are putting ourselves, we, we see a lack of humility in this space. And we're coming at this from a, a way of saying, let's solve one individual problem. Let's make a fun game, right? Simple as that, no monetary incentive, no crypto attached to it. Let's just make a fun game and see if we can do that with a decentralized collective. And if we can do that, maybe we can step it up, right? But let's let's prove our, our, our worth and the worth of this idea in actual practice in a pragmatic way and learn and iterate. One of the reasons, you know, we wouldn't do it as a DAO on a blockchain and have too much you know, hardness of the system is we, we believe in iteration. We want to have an impact in the metaverse. How are we going to get there unless we change our system constantly based on the feedback we get? And that's one of the issues that we see with many of these systems. They're totally unchangeable. And that's not a method to go forward, you know? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Awesome. Sounds good, guys. All right. We will meet back next time at one and a half hours ago. This time we will meet back and every week we're going to have this podcast and a roundtable and we're going to enable people to come in and all of you listening can join us and be part osum.cc slash socials. Come join us. That is O-C-E-M dot C-C slash socials. Come join us. Be a part of this. We'd love to have you. Take care.